What is up, everybody? And all my listeners out there, this is the latest episode of Dean Dome Sports. It is my pleasure to bring this to you. I am Mike Dean. In this episode, I'm going to look back at the pretty amazing and improbable run the Phillies just made to the World Series. Uh, coming off a 87 and 65 win season. That's 87 wins, 65 loss season. Where they finished as the bottom wildcard team. I mean, it, it, it was definitely an improbable run. Uh, a lot of people saying that it's, it wasn't that improbable because of their high payroll. But yes, that it, it is expected of them at this point with one of the highest payrolls in baseball to be a playoff team and stuff. But, I mean, I will get into why this was an improbable run. I will also get into a little spat that uh, two of my... Two of my friends and I got into on social media on one of the Philly sports sites. We kind of get into spats quite a bit because, you know, I tend to have a very, very realistic view of the sports teams that I root for. Um,. I expect a lot of them, since they're professionals, I expect them to win. You know, I do not like when they lose. I, I actually get pretty downright uh, angry and upset. Uh, just ask my wife when uh, my teams lose. Um, you know, maybe unrealistically, I expect my teams to be in the playoffs all the time and win. You know, I, I want them to win. I want to, I want parades galore. I want to be as myopic and insane as Yankees fans, you know, with their freaking 27 championships or Lakers fans or Celtics fans. You know, you could go run the gamut of all, all the, the, the top teams ever. You know, I want my teams to, to, to reach that that level of success, you know, why shouldn't you want that? You know, yeah, yes, there are times where, you know, your teams don't get to be that good. The Phillies epically are, uh, you know, throughout their history, one of the worst, you know, they have the worst record overall in all of sports. Period. End of story. That that fact can't be even be challenged by anybody. It's a fact. Look it up. They have the most losses ever by any sports team. Hmm. Yeah, it's a byproduct of being around since 1883. Yes, you know, but you know, there are, there are many teams out there that have been around almost as long or even longer and have more championships. I I want the Phillies to win another one before I pass on in this great earth. 
maybe even more than just one more. Uh, is, 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 that too, is that too much to ask? You know? So, moving on a little from that, we'll uh, delve into the run the Phillies made. Um, and, but, you know, we, 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 by all... By all stretches, it really was an improbable run. I mean, they started out having to beat St. Louis in St. Louis for, and I mean, it was a three-game series, but all the games were going to be in St. Louis. So, you know, expecting the Phillies to take two or three might have been a bit much on the surface, considering the Cardinals won their division and the Phillies were the last wild card. But as I told my buddy, Pete Colisano, who runs a podcast similar to this one, uh, he does video on there, though. Uh, one, maybe one day I'll, I'll get to that point. But he, he does a bump and run sports podcast with his buddy, Scott Bracey. And just before, I believe it was the night before, the uh, playoffs started. That series started in St. Louis. I was doing my research. I was probably doing my research to do a podcast to preview the series. I just didn't get to do one. The, the playoffs, but I didn't get to do one. When I looked, I saw that the Phillies were going with their two... Best pitchers for the first two games, Zach Wheeler and Aaron Nola. And I saw that the Cardinals, they were countering with Jose Quintana and Miles Mikolas. Just, just off of that, I text Pete and I said, I am calling, at this moment, I am calling that the Phillies take these first two games outright and win against the Cardinals. That would the totem that right from the right from the jump. And he said, yeah, initially he was just like, wow, you really uh going a little going a little crazy with your uh, prediction there. And uh, all I told him in response was Wheeler is greater than Quintana, Nola greater than Mikolas. And it played out that way, basically. I mean, the first game was was a was a, was a nail biting, non scoring game until I think I, I think it went even to extra innings, and the, the the Phillies scratched one. They they had to come from behind too. I mean, they were down, and they had to go in, into St. Louis's bullpen. Who had they had a pretty decent bullpen, and they had to first tie the game, and then they had to win in extra innings. They did. And then they wound up beating the Cardinals after that. So, yeah, my my buddies Dan and Chris, not going to mention their last names and really, really call them out. But I mean, you could go on uh, NBC Sports Philly on a on a video where it was the uh, the video after the Phillies lost the World Series and Ben Davis was talking. Yeah, you can look it up. I commented my comment. Those guys came after me. Then uh, they posted. They basically said that I wrote the Phillies off back back in September. Uh, 
these two guys tend to delve into the realm of hyperbole and exaggeration when they verbally attack any of my posts or whatever, whatever they do to contradict any of my thoughts, um, which you're free to do. I mean, that's, that's what, that's what these kind of sports podcasts and social media, it's basically what the platform is for, you know, for, you know, uh, sports discussion and even sports debate, if you will. In that debate, though, they basically said, they basically said, I made a post where I wrote the Phillies off. That's their direct quote. I wrote the Phillies off. And they even posted the quote. They even posted the post. And the post said that, and I'll get into why I posted what I said. And I said, the Phillies can't beat, and this was at that time now, September 17th was the post. At that time, the Phillies cannot beat the Braves or the Mets. And I said that fact, not being able to beat the Braves and the Mets, did not bode well for a potential playoff run for that squad. That was the direct quote. Where in that does it say, I wrote them off? That I wrote them off for their playoff future success? No. I just said that that fact did not bode well for them for a future playoff run. Because at that time, they were due to play the Mets in the first wildcard round. Where they would have had to go to City Field, where the Mets play, and they would have been lined up against Jacob deGrom and Max Scherzer, two exponentially better pitchers than Jose Quintana and Miles Mikolas. Fact. Where was I wrong? Are you saying that I mean, Dan and Chris, are you saying that if the Phillies had matched up against the Mets, that they would have gone into City Field and done what the Padres did and taken both of those games? And where they didn't actually, you know, the the, the Padres, you know, that had to go three. That had to go to the full three games in that series, where you know they they had, they actually got to. To face Chris Bassett, who a lot of people say, well, yeah, yeah, he was a decent pitcher for them, but not necessarily a playoff-tested uh, pitcher. Where you know, whereas the the third pitcher the Padres threw against them, it probably was on equal. It was equal footing there for that pet, the pitching matchup. So if you somehow got past, if you got a win on Degrom or Scherzer. Yes, you could potentially take a th- that third game against the Mets, but you're, again, you're facing three games in City Field. But again, you, you would have been matched up against Degrom and Scherzer, two pitchers the Phillies didn't do not and did not have much success against in their careers. Again, where was I wrong? Where was I wrong on that? But they did go and take out the Cardinals, where 
I said, again, to my buddy P. Colasano, that that is what they would do. They would take those two games. Then came the Braves. Another tough matchup. I did not make any bold predictions at, for that series. I I wasn't touching. I, I wanted to enjoy the ride after the Cardinals. I wanted to see how far they could get. And I was not going to mess that up by posting on social media. I, which I didn't. I got somehow criticized for that one too because I didn't post anything. I, was, I did post, you know, when they won. You know, ring the darn bell and, and I counted down how many games were, you know, were left in their potential run for a World Series trophy. But, I mean... Should I have been negative at all? And in, 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 in even, you know, the fact that they lost. The only the, uh, one thing I did say was that I, I believed Ronald Acuna embellished a lot when he got hit in game, I think it was game two of that series. And I, I, I don't believe I was wrong in that statement either. And Acuna wound up being a goat later on on a inside the park home run hit by uh, JT Real Muto, where he didn't even back up his center fielder. On a you know the ball hit the the, the little angle wall in in uh, Citizens Bank Park and bounced away and Acuna there's a great video of him just standing there watching, <laughs> not even backing up. Anyway, so the Phillies wound up taking uh, that series against the uh, the Braves. Um, Again, and at that point, they established kind of their own little home field advantage where, you know, if they were able to take at least one win in the other team's stadium, which they did not against the Braves, and then they followed that up by doing that against the Padres in that five-game series where, you know, they didn't... They didn't Actually, in the seven-game series for the NLCS, the Phillies just they they won all the home games and made sure it didn't go back to San Diego. Great job on their part. Yeah, they 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 established their own kind of home field and they took one from the Padres as well in San Diego. So you you know, then you move on to uh to uh the Astros where again Astros at home field and the Phillies took game one. Um, you know, and it, so they came back to Philly 1-1, and the Phillies took game three. So at that point, I mean, I'm, I'm saying close it out at home, win it at home, don't even, don't even bother coming back to Houston. Well, they, they got no hit, and then lost game five in a, in a tough one. But it's weird how it all played out, though, you know, um, after, you know, especially after game three where they hit all the home runs. And it's just it's, from that, you know, from from like the fifth inning point of that game three on to the rest of the series, I think the Phillies scored maybe two runs, maybe three, something like that. And it was all basically Kyle Schwarber it was, you know, the rest I, the rest of the lineup, I have no clue, and and it's weird. Like, uh, 
in that game three, you know, the, the, there's the, the, the moment where Bryce Harper famously brings uh, Alec Bohm over before his at-bat and tells him something he saw in Lance McCullers' delivery. And, in the, you know, there's videos out there basically showing that Lance McCullers was tipping the pitches that he was throwing. And, you know, when a team figures that out, that it, it, it makes it, it's not cheating, by the way. I mean, if, if a pitcher's tipping his pitches, you know, a, a lineup is fully expected to take full advantage of that and, you know, go to town and do their do their dirty work and, and, and hitting the ball and scoring as many runs as possible against that pitcher. I mean, that, that that's on the pitcher, you know, shame on, you know, Stupid on him the, the, for doing that, but seems like from that point on, the Astros made an adjustment in their pitching, where they were going they were going to feature the high fastball to much of the lineup that the Phillies brought out, all except for basically Nick Castellanos. And a couple of the righties, maybe, where you, you would see off-speed, off-speeds. But, like, they really, really made a concerted effort to just feature the fastball up in the zone and above. Where, you know, and and the Phillies hitters just bit and bit and bit. And it just seemed like... When the when the Phillies got home run happy in Game Three, that that became the mindset is just like all right, we're just gonna you know swing out of our shoe shoe tops and 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 go for broke every every at bat, you know trying to trying trying to hit his ball as far as possible and you know I did play the game for a little bit, you know, and, and even in some you know semi pro leagues where. And let me tell you something. And I played in some wood bat leagues. You know, nothing like the majors, by the way, where pe- people were, were throwing nineties. There were a couple guys throwing nineties, but you know they couldn't control their, their they couldn't control their fastball to the point to that point. And you know the, the curveballs were average. But any time you're in a swinging a wood bat, and you try to you know swing out of your shoe tops and it, you know swing as hard as you can it it usually does not work out for you in a positive light okay like most of the time when you make good contact all you're doing is putting the barrel of the ball and yeah it's not a hundred percent swing it's more like a 85 to 90 percent swing you know what I mean where you're just swinging free and easy it's kind of like golf, honestly. You know, if you ever play golf and you're in the tee box and you just try to hit his ball, hit the ball as hard as you freaking can, you know, like you see the little yellow ball and you got this club that's light in your hand and you're just, I'm going to you know, basically close my eyes and swing away as hard as you can. Never works out well. But when you're free and easy, and you're not thinking about it or whatever, that's when you hit the ball the farthest. It's the same 
basic logic, and, it's, and it, it's, it's, it works out the same way. And you can even ask any of the hitters. You know, I love listening to Mike Schmidt talk about hitting because he's he always said that when he hit a home run, most mo, almost ninety nine point nine percent of his home runs he wasn't trying to hit a home run. In fact, a lot, he says a lot of times he was trying to just hit the ball to center field. So, again, just it's it's that weird a game, and it's weird that the Phillies hitters just never made that final adjustment, other than Schwarber. Really, Schwarber was the only offense, and then famously, in the eighth inning of the deciding game, down two strikes, he squares up the bunt, which. Is something not even really good bunters ever do. One. And two, what the hell is he doing trying to square the bunt? And then he popped it up. and it, it, That moment told me that they gave up as a team. I didn't even watch the final inning. I don't even know what happened for the final three outs that they made. I, I, know, I know they happened because they didn't do dick after that still, you know. But the, the, the Schwarber doing that told me they gave up. And I was like, huh? Why? You know, I don't know. It did, a lot of stuff didn't make sense. Um, I mean, I could probably go into the Framber Valdez stuff where it looked like in game two he was maybe putting uh, something on the ball. You know, and, and I mean, he did have sick movement with his fastball and sick movement with his breaking stuff. His breaking stuff was filthy the whole freaking series. Um, I don't know. Like, yes, they had a great pitching staff. Top to bottom. Yeah, and, and, you know, starting rotation at bullpen. Um, were they unhittable, though? Really? I... I didn't like seeing that the Phillies didn't make or even attempt to make an adjustment against what the Astros adjusted in their end. Didn't, yeah. didn't make sense to me. It seemed shady. Um, almost, almost seemed like uh, it, 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 was, it was hell-bent that Dusty Baker had to get his ring. My observation on that. And, I mean, you can say what you want. But uh, that, just how it played out and, and everything. Yeah, I, I, for the Phillies to go up 2-1 and have all the momentum in the series, and then for almost literally nothing else happen in their favor. Why? Again, and, and you know, they were up one nothing, And... Zach Wheeler was dealing only through 70 pitches and gave up a base hit and gave up two hits in a row. And one of them was a broken batter. So you can't fault him on that one. And then the the one that Pena hit straight up the middle, um, for whatever reason, yeah, you know, they didn't have the shift on them at that point. I mean, I guess because maybe there was a runner on base. I don't know. But uh, 
wasn't like he was going opposite field at, at any point during the, his amazing hitting display in this series. And, you know, he, all of his hits were either straight up the middle or pulled. So it would almost seem to me like you would think you would have the shift on him for that, but they didn't. And, I mean, it, I don't know, probably a, a double play ball in the shift didn't didn't happen. So, again, I... Pulling Zach Wheeler, Wheeler with 70 pitches, I, I, again, to face Jordan Alvarez, who hits better against lefties for, you know, they, they bring on brought in Alvarado, their best lefty reliever. I don't know. Didn't make, I, you, you, you commend a lot of the moves that Rob Thompson made leading up to the World Series and even all the way up to Game 3, but... After that, some some of his decision making, I, I think, has to be questioned. Why? Well, why? What philosophy are you? Was he bringing there? Uh, to me, it seemed like he got outmanaged by Dusty Baker, and that that is almost inexplicable because Dusty Baker famously it, was one of the biggest choking managers in in playoff history you know you, you go back and look at some of the the epic uh failures of dusty baker in playoff past uh, i don't know but anyway they made their run fun ride now it's time to look at the off season Already, some some moves have been made. Uh, they re up Nola, which needed to happen. Uh, Eflin and Segura opted out. Well, Phillies opted out of Segura's contract. He was due to make like 17, 18 million, something like that. And similar with Eflin as well, but Eflin opted out on himself. That tells me a couple things. Uh, the fact that Segura is a free agent now and, and, and the Phillies opted out of him tells me that they are going they are going to be players for one of the top four shortstop free agents. You have Trey Turner, Carlos Correa, Dansby Swanson, and Xander Bogarts. All four of those have a ring. All four of those are going to be due to make a mass ton of money because they are all four good defensive shortstops and they are all good hitters. Um, the guy I would target is Trey Turner. And here's why. Trey Turner would be your shortstop for the foreseeable future. You would move Bryson Stott, the young guy that played short. You'd move him to second base. Um, that would give you a top prototypical leadoff hitter. Not to say that Kyle Schwerber wasn't a good leadoff hitter this year. He, yeah, he had a 46 home runs hitting leadoff. 
But you want those 46 home runs in the middle of the lineup where you could drive home Trey Turner and, you know, name any guy hitting two or three or wherever you, wherever you want, where you want Schwarber is in the middle of the lineup with those 46 home runs driving in multiple runners so you can have crooked numbers in crooked innings. Crooked numbers in, 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 Numerous innings, potentially. Um, it would even balance the lineup. Like you would, you would have the luxury basically to pretty much go right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left. That way, managers can't in the later innings target your lineup with, you know, bullpen arms. This, you know, especially now when you have the rule where. A bullpen pitcher has to throw three to three batters. You know, you don't have situations where you have any to any of similar hitters in in lineups where it's it's all righty or all lefty, where they could do that. You know, you go right, left, right, left, right, left. That puts pressure on the pitchers, which is what you want anyway. Uh, so I would make the move of Trey Turner. Trey Turner has a ring. Trey Turner played with Bryce Harper. Uh, for all accounts, I believe they are friends. So that would work out with the clubhouse situation. He he would come in seamlessly, and I would say seamlessly. And uh, I would I would almost even bet that once he walks into that locker room or that clubhouse, he becomes one of the leaders because he just he has a ring he's been to multiple playoff series he's played in multiple he's just got a, he's got he's got postseason experience galore as do all the other the other three i mean if i if i were to rank the the, the four the top four ones that i would bring in i th- i think i would go trey turner xander bogarts Dansby Swanson, Carlos Correa. Carlos Correa at this point, I kind of see him, and I, I think it might have even played out this year in Minnesota. Where I, I almost think that he's probably the one of of those four that could be kind of on the decline with his uh, with his numbers and stuff. So I, I w- I would only bring him in last resort, and I mean, even if even if he's the only one available at that point, after the other three were to sign, maybe I should shy away from from him and see what else is you know kind of out there. And then, yeah, because yeah, really, Bryson Stout, you know, second half of the year wasn't really that bad of a player. Actually, had a decent average for the second half. I see him and you know, and and defensively was was more than capable there. It's just that you know these four guys are are better defensively, you know, more range and, and everything, more you know, more experience playoff wise. Just different dynamic. Those four guys, no matter what, if you brought them in, would improve the ball club tremendously. But I think. I think it's an all-in scenario on bringing in Trey Turner. I would say another bullpen arm, possibly. 
you know, I, I wouldn't even, I, I saw that well, the one uh, Astros bullpen or Montero is available for agency. I might even think about bringing him in. You know, just, you know, he could fit into that whole closer committee situation that the Phillies have. Uh, would I prefer a stable guy? Absolutely. But, I mean, Corey, Corey Neville was supposed to be that guy and it didn't pan out. So that's what I'm saying there. As for, you know, the, the you know, Eflin leaving, what that tells me is you know, your one is Wheeler, two is Nola, that they bring him back. Ranger Suarez, um, watch out for this name. Andrew Painter. He is the number one pitching prospect, and he resides in Philly's AAA right now. Now, he's only thrown 100 innings in AAA, so that's whether he comes up this year or not, it, it can be debated. But I would just watch for that name even in the spring, in spring training, and see if, you know, he just comes into spring training dominating hitters, blah, 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 wins the job outright, maybe even comes up with the big club. I'm saying he comes up no later than June. And by then, you're looking at a guy who throws in the hundreds with nasty breaking stuff. Every every part of the minor leagues that he's pitched in, he has been beyond dominant. And like when they say, now we've been down this road before where, you know, Writers and stuff, uh, giving a, a Phillies a Phillies prospect the number one moniker. We had that with Dominic Brown. What happened with him? But this is a pitcher, and supposedly he's on the right track, and they're not you know rushing him or whatever. But just watch out for that name next year. All right, we got to move on from baseball here. We are in the halfway point of the NFL. It's the official halfway point of this season. And we'll run through the AFC first. So right now, as it as it as we speak, AFC East looks like this. You got Buffalo at six and two, Jets six and three, Dolphins six and three, Patriots five and four. Only division, by the way, where every Member of it, every team in the division is over 500. Nobody saw that one coming. Trust me on that. The North, you got the Ravens at six and three, Bengals five and four, Browns three and five, Steelers two and six. I think most people might have thought of uh, Bengals Ravens could have been you know kind of reversed there, but Ravens are a, kind of a pleasant surprise thus far. South. AFC South, you get the Titans five and three, Colts three five and one, Jaguars three and six, Texans one six and one. Um, really, I think the Colts are the biggest surprise here. I mean, they are an absolute dumpster fire. I think you're going to see them just spiral even further downward. I mean, I mean the whole Matt Ryan thing didn't work. Just very very weird situation there. Uh, Frank Reich just got fired. 
Jeff Saturday is their head coach. He's got no, I don't think he's got any kind of coaching experience whatsoever. He's just, you know, he was a Hall of Fame center that played with Peyton Manning. But, I mean, boy, that's just, ugh, quotes. AFC West, Chiefs 6-2, and two, Chargers 5-3, and three, Broncos 3-5, and five, Raiders 2-6. and six. Really, uh, I think not a real surprise at the top two, but the bottom two, very, very surprising. I think a lot of people were thinking that all four teams could, out of this division could, could make the playoffs. I believe I picked that to, to, be, to be the case. Um, just uh, shocking, really, the, the Broncos and Raiders and, and how bad they've been. Um, so, you know, so basic observations, your Bills and Chiefs pretty much as advertised. Um, Who would have thought that the East, though, would be the best division of this conference? Uh, Patriots and Jets, got to be big surprises. Um, I mean, the Ravens, kind of surprising that they're winning their division at 63. Bengals, I'm... Kind of shocked they're only at five and four. Um, and I guess really those are your your big surprises. Your three teams to watch going forward. And I'm saying this as these these are three teams that currently have losing records, but I think could challenge and possibly even get in the playoffs. Uh, one is the Broncos. Um, they st- it, they still defend. They're, they're the second best defensive team in the conference. They've only given up 132 points. The only other team that's given up less is the Buffalo Bills at 118. So that tells me that I think they still have a shot at changing things around. Next, the Jaguars. At three and six, the talent is there. Can they put it all together? I think they still have a shot at that division. I, I don't I don't buy it. I that the, the Titans are good and they were the number one seed last year. I just don't, I don't buy into I don't buy into them. I don't buy into Ryan Tannehill and and now Ryan Tannehill isn't even a quarterback. It's Malik Willis. I mean, it, 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 will that translate? I mean, Mike Vrabel is a really good coach. Yes. He's a Bill Belichick protege. But just, I'm, I'm not buying one into, into what, they're, what, they're do, what they're doing. I, I, they just seem like a middle-of-the-road team, really. And, and they've given up more points than they've scored. So I'm just And the Jaguars have scored more points than they've given up. That kind of tells me that the the things could switch in that front there. Just watch for the Jaguars. And finally, just look where the look where the Browns are in the in the in their division or the record by week thirteen when Deshaun Watson comes back. If the Browns are st- Around 500, if they're they're like 
a game under or 500 or a game over. And I want to say that it could be one or the other. But just watch. If they're around 500, they could be a sneaky team at the end that could surprise some people. It's just... I, I believe he's able to start practicing now, starting this week. So that means he's going to have time under his belt working with the first team starters and stuff like that. He'll be able to come in and run that team seamlessly by week 13. Just for their for that stretch run. If they are in contention, watch out. That's all I'm saying. Watch out for the Browns. That takes care of the AFC. Now look at the, we're going to look at the NFC. So far this season, at the halfway point, in the East, you have the Eagles, 8-0, only unbeaten team left in the all football. Cowboys, 6-2, Giants, 6-2, Commanders, 4-5. Um, I, nobody saw the Giants being this good, as good as the Cowboys. Nobody saw that. Knew they were going to be improved just, you know, by the draft and some of the moves they made offseason, but didn't think it would translate that quickly. Vikings, 7-1. and one. Packers, 3-6. and six. Bears, 3-6. and six. Lions, 2-6. and six. I mean... Vikings at 7-1 is a, a bit of a surprise. Knew they'd be good, but I don't, I'm not sure about that That good. And, I mean, nobody saw nobody saw the Packers being this bad. I mean, you thought them trading away Devontae Adams and a couple of the other players they let go would, would, would hurt, but, I mean, it's still Aaron Rodgers, right? You know? It just... Uh, I don't know. I don't know. The South. Buccaneers, 4-5. and five. Falcons, 4-5. and five. Saints, 3-6. and six. Panthers, 2-7. and seven. Oof. What an awful division. I mean, is the, you know, the... the this, the, the NFC South, could, you could make the case that this is the worst division in football now. I mean, it's just, uh This ain't the first time it's happened either. You know, the, the Panthers once won their division by being like 7-9 and nine or some stupid shit like that. Just, every team's under 500 there. Awful. And in the West, you have the Seahawks 6-3, 49ers 4-4. Four Rams three and five, Cardinals three and six. Nobody, I mean nobody, saw the Seahawks, especially after trading away Russell Wilson. Now, what did I say when that trade happened? I said, I said that the Seahawks got a pretty good haul back in return, and that. Now I did. I was I didn't say that they were in for a quick turnaround right away. Off of it, I did say though that the fact that 
you know, they got a lot of potential assets in return for Russell Wilson. I didn't think it was going to be, you know, that bad for them going forward. Just didn't think it would happen this soon. I mean, just, who knew Geno Smith was going to be this good? <laughs> Nobody saw that one. <laughs> oh, boy. So just some basic observations at the halfway point. I mean, I said in my NFL preview, the last podcast I did, you can go back and listen. I said in my NFL preview, the Eagles' schedule was favorable. I even said that to the point where I struggled to find losses on that schedule. I think I wound up giving them a 13-4 and record. They might even do better than they, they They could run the table. The, the schedule is that favorable for them. And it, it, it's a byproduct of them having to play the South of the AFC, the worst division historically in football. You can even ask Pete Colosano and Scott Bracey on that one. You, you can't be disputed at this point. It's that it is literally the worst division in football. Well, maybe not this year, <laughs> uh, but historically it is. And. I said, even, they could and possibly will be the number one seed going into the playoffs. And that right now is playing out. I knew the Cowboys and Vikings would be good. Off of my preview. Didn't think the Vikings would be this good. Cowboys... Maybe you're better than what I thought, especially with Dak being hurt. Um, Might have thought that they would stumble a little bit. Uh, Your surprises in this conference? I mean, it's definitely the Giants at 6-2. I mean, I knew they'd be improved, but not 6-2. Okay. Um, Seahawks at 6-3. Nobody saw that one coming. Trust me. Especially in that division. You know... I'm pretty sure just about everybody thought that they'd be last. Uh, and I mean, and in the, the I guess in the negative sense, the Bucks, Packers, and Rams all have losing records at this point. You know, especially the Rams being the defending champs. Um, the Bucks. I mean, the Bucks at four and five, they're they're winning their division. Um. It's probably going to play out to be that case anyway, because they're the best defensive team. The, the Falcons, Saints, and Panthers do not play any defense whatsoever. They're, they're the, 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 other than the Cardinals and the Lions, they're the worst defensive teams in football. They just don't play defense. Um, team to watch out for. I gave you three teams to watch in the NFC. There's only one team to really watch out for right now in, in, in the NFC. And that's the that's the 49ers. 49ers are sitting at four and four. They made the trade for Christian McCaffrey. Um that that offense has got now the potential to be dynamic with McCaffrey, Debo Samuel, and George Kittle, and Brandon Ayuk. 
Pappy. There's really now no excuse for Jimmy Garoppolo to not take this team at least to the NFC title now. I mean, it almost, I mean, right now it looks like the Rams, unless they figure the, figure something out. But, I mean, the, the, the Rams can't score. I don't understand. And really, it, it, for them, it comes down to the fact that, that the running game is just awful. They can't run the ball, and until they can figure that out, they're they're you know, and he, he, even Matthew, you know, you could have the best quarterback in the world if you make them one dimensional. I mean, it's a, yeah, look, <laughs> but I'm saying right now it's going to be Philly and uh, San Francisco for the NFC title. Philly will have the home field. You can read into that what you will, but that that's my prediction there. Didn't make a prediction for the NFC. That's really right now too close, too hard to call. Yeah, I think it, I I think it's going to play out for Bills and Chiefs, but I mean, there's a lot of league, a lot of like similar similarly good teams in the AFC. A lot of good offenses. But uh, suspect defenses, I would say. The Dolphins can't defend anybody right now. They're just, right now, they're lucky that they're winning winning games. And the Ravens are in a similar fashion. They play a little more defense than, than the Dolphins. Um, and, yeah. Are the Jets for real? They just beat the Bills. Are the Jets for real? So, last part of the show. Got 10 minutes left. We're going to do some uh, DFS golf picks for the Houston Open this week. Uh, give me my DraftKings and my FanDuel picks. Um... If you want to go to a past podcast, I have a, uh, a detailed my system. Uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but I mean, this is a system I use for for both. Um, FanDuel tends to be easier to put a, a, a really com- competitively pe- competitively good lineup together than DraftKings. DraftKings, you have to be a lot more creative, especially uh, like this week when. I take the top guy. So, without further ado, DraftKings, it's the Houston Open this week. So, my top player in DraftKings is Scotty Scheffler at 11,500. Finished third last week at Mayakoba. Uh, shot a 62 in the final round. And it, it, he's playing in his home state, Texas. So, I gotta think that he's familiar with this course. And usually, any events in Texas, he does very well. My number two in DraftKings, Taylor Montgomery at 9,700. This is a kind of a young gun. He's kind of a, I would say he's possibly right now, this year's Will Zalatoris. This year's Colin Morikawa. He's played five events thus far this fall. 
And he has finished 3rd, 9th, 15th, 13th, and 10th, respectively, last week. This guy's a budding star. Simple as that. And I'd say, like, the, I think the last few that I've played, I have gone with this guy in, in, in every single one. Three, Mackenzie Hughes, 7,700. He's played in three events this fall, and he has won one of them. And he's got a 23rd and 25th. So, at a mid-range rate, I'm getting a guy who's actually won one of these tournaments this fall. Four, Davis Thompson at 7,300. In three events this fall, he has a 9th and a 12th. Two of the three, he's finished in the top 15. So, again, at, at a lower lower uh, value, you're getting a guy who's been in top 15 in two of the three tournaments he's played. At number five, Danny Willett at 7,200 in three events this fall. He has a second and a 21st. So I think you see where I'm going here. I, I mean, these lower values... You're getting some value where you're getting guys that can finish in the top 10. And finally, David Lingmurth at 6,600. In the last two weeks, he's finished 8th and 11th. Basically in DraftKings, and again, I've gone through this with my system. If you get one of the top guys, top guys usually range uh, from... 12,000 to, say, 11,000 in that range. If you pick one of those guys, it's really hard to get the value back up to pick another guy in that range. You're basically going to have to play multiple guys in the 6 to, between 6 to 7,500. And even then, the most expensive guy I was able to get other than Scheffler after that was Montgomery at 97. So, FanDuel, it's a lot easier to build a, a top-heavy lineup, and you'll see why. So, in FanDuel, my top player, Scotty Scheffler, 12,000. He is the top player. Two, Russell Henley, 11,300. I wanted him in DraftKings. He was just too expensive. He's a winner last week, and he historically does really well here, and he's won this event back in 2017. Taylor Montgomery, 11,000. As you heard above in the DraftKings description, he's a, he's a, he's basically almost guaranteed a top 15 when he plays. Four, Patrick Rogers at 9,900. His last four tournaments this fall. He's got a 27th, a 3rd, a 16th, and a 28th. So, I'm taking a flyer basically on a guy that, that finished 3rd in an event within the last uh, month, a month and a half. So, David Lingmurth at 8,100 as above. He finished in the last two weeks, 8th and 11th. Pretty much reinforcing kind of uh, my pick for him in DraftKings at 6,600. He's 8,100 here. He's kind of a mid-range guy in FanDuel. 
And finally, Robbie Shelton at 7,400 in three of five tourneys. Three of his five tourneys this fall, 23rd, 15th, and 21st. I'm just, you know, I'm hoping for uh, a guy that maybe catches fire and, and gets to be a, a, a top 15 or a top 10. Those are my picks. If you want, you can uh, go to one of my free previous podcasts about my uh, DFS system uh, for uh, for for golf. I have one for football too. Uh, haven't done my DFS picks for football yet this week. Just, I mean, I gotta wait for some injury reports to come out before I, I make that make any uh, decisions on that front. But that is my podcast for this week. Uh, if you listen, I hope you enjoy it. I'm hoping to do more. I'm hoping to do some more uh, in a more timely fashion. Let's say, <laughs> hopefully that will come to come to pass. But you know, yeah, I'm a busy man. Anyway, hope you li- hope you listen. Hope you enjoy it, and. Again, if you do listen, thanks for listening, and tell your friends.